You're listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Mastering Retention. Uh, today, we're super uh, lucky to have Ethan, is it Levi? Levy. Levy with us today. Um, so uh, Ethan's been in, in games for a long time. Ethan, I'd, I'd love to hear your story. Like, how did you get into games? Where did it all start? Sure. Um so I, you know, growing up, I always knew I wanted to make games and specifically to be a game designer. Um, and I got my, my career really started in college on two fronts. Uh, I was studying communications at University of Southern California, and I was very lucky that I had a cousin who knew the game director for Star Wars Battlefront. And I basically, I met Giz uh, with my cousin Eric over lunch, uh, just talked about my passion for games and what I want to do, and then basically hounded him on email until he hooked me up with an internship at Pandemic Studios. Uh, so I spent two years working at Pandemic, uh, starting as an intern, and by the time I was done, before I graduated college, I had a, a lead tester credit on Star Wars Battlefront, which was a huge hit on the PS2, Xbox, and PC. Um, at the same time I was doing that, I was also building my own student games. And uh, there was some competitions uh, that I entered. And there was this one, um, the Hidden Agenda competition that I was a finalist one year and I uh, won it the next year. And so by the time I graduated college, I was no longer with Pandemic, unfortunately. I was part of that kind of traditional console cycle of getting laid off <laughs> in between uh, the initial games. release and the sequel. Uh, but I had a really strong resume thanks to my time at Pandemic and my uh, games that I had done all the programming, design, and art on. And I uh, landed a job up in San Francisco at a casual game developer called PlayFirst. And that was kind of my uh, official uh, entry into the uh, games industry uh, beyond, you know, just QA. Yeah. And then it looks like, you know, you've pretty much been in, in games since then doing a lot. Would you say a lot of your background is uh, on design work, producers? I, I go, my, my career kind of goes back and forth between design and production and has a period of time um, where I was a consultant, uh, specifically on game, free-to-play game monetization and where design meets business. So mm. um I've always kind of had my uh, foot in in both sides of design and production. I, I consider game design my core pillar and my core strength, um, yeah. but I have kind of the organizational and business skills that help me um, go back and forth. And I think kind of what tends to happen is I go somewhere and I start as a designer and somebody says, you should lead a project. And then I end up being a producer. <laughs> That's, um, you know, that happened at Play First. Uh, where, you know, my first game was Connect Four Cities and I was like a level designer and did UI layouts and stuff. And uh, three or four months later when that wrapped, they're like, and now you should produce and lead this game, The Mystery <laughs> of Shark Island. And so I did that. And then I was a designer. The next company, I win, still a casual game developer. And when I went to EA, again, kind of starting as a designer, working for the chief creative director um, of the company, 
uh, doing special projects focusing on uh, in-game monetization and then um, hooked up with these guys, these two executives, Mark Spenner and Pete Holly, who um, gave me the opportunity to join their new initiative doing first Flash and then Facebook mm. uh, free-to-play games with EA brands and again as, as a producer. Um, and then again, the same thing kind of happened to me. Net- Network's a, a bit of a different beast uh, because network, at least at the time that I joined it, they had just started as a game developer. They'd been an app developer for two years and switched to a game mm-hmm. developer. And when I was hired, it was because of a GDC talk I had given that our CEO, Neil Young, had been in the audience and seen and invited me <laughs> into the uh, company to talk to some people. And um, I interviewed with no job posting, no job rec, no description. (laughs) I just like went in, uh, met some founders and some key people. Uh, Neil called me and gave me an offer on the walk home, actually. And I joined the company not knowing what games they were making, what game I would be working on, or what my job would be. Ah. <laughs> uh, it was really interesting. And so when I, the, basically my first day there, uh, one of the co-founders, uh, Bob, uh, sat down with me, told me what they had going on. He was working as the executive producer on Legendary at the time. So he explained what was going on with Legendary and like what the challenges were at the time and what, you know, what their schedule was like. And I remember I was kind of, just kind of like, um, okay, well, do you have, um, do you have a feature roadmap? Do you have a list of all the features that you need to do to be soft launched? Uh, no. And do you have specs for all those things? No. And I'm like, okay, let me just go do that. And so <laughs> I basically was the uh, I was the lead designer on Legendary. My my strength at the time, and really my strength, uh, as I said, design and feature design. Yep. Um, and so I led that with you know I had kind of. Uh, three partners in crime, uh, James, who was the James Marr, who is the lead engineer, and Hide, who was the lead product manager, and uh, Stephen Royer, the lead artist. And so we kind of formed this leadership group uh, where Hide and I had were both kind of depending on the company, you would either call us designers or product managers, uh, but we had very complementary skills of me setting up features for him and then his team of product managers to operate and run. So like design was very collaborative between all of us. Um, But uh, you know, it was kind of like building features in service of live operations. And then um, I spent a year as a lead designer on a game that had been in production for a long time, trying to help turn it around. And then uh, the, uh, I kind of at the end of 2017, they asked me uh, to take, they had just signed um, the Tetris license and it had been in development for a couple months. And they asked me to lead Tetris as the executive producer. And that's where I am now. So kind of, I know that was like long winded, (laughs) but like a very familiar pattern of like, start as designer, end up producer, start as designer, end up (laughs) producer. And um, I think it's kind of that, uh, experience of really going back to my student projects of being able to do everything yeah. and having a hand at some point in every facet of game development, which is that like gives me the, um, the knowledge and experience and, and viewpoint to cover 
production because I, I've done the product manager job. I've done the QA job. I've done the design job. I've mm-hmm. made my own sound effects before. <laughs> I've done my own project management for internal and external uh, projects. I've, um, uh, I've done my own art only for student games uh, and, and like one flash game. But, uh, and I've done my own, you know, you'd never hire me as a programmer, but I've programmed my own games and I make my own prototypes. <laughs> so I kind of do it all. And, and as a result, people tend to look at me and say, you should be producing projects. <laughs> Would you say that that's something that you'd recommend that other people try to do to just have that holistic understanding of all the different jobs and how they interrelate together? Do you think that makes you a better producer or designer or whatnot? Absolutely. And, and especially if you're earlier on or starting out, like doing your own project completely from scratch or trying to get experience in every one of these kind of job categories, I, I think it's, it's only made me, um, stronger, given me more empathy for people, helped me understand their thought process uh, when when we work on stuff and help me communicate with them um, so that I can do my job better, right? Like I'm doing, you know, even just, just yesterday as a good example, uh, I'm working on a new Tetris game that's about to come out. It'll probably come out, you know, by the time this podcast is out. So like our, our third Tetris product at, at Network. Awesome. And um, uh, just yesterday, like uh, there were some new features we need to build. Me and the engineer working on it um, from some requests from our uh, one of the stakeholders. And um, in the morning, I just made a spreadsheet with what the data model would be I would need to control as the designer in order to like express it for the player. And so building that spreadsheet took maybe 30 minutes. And then I talk with the programmer and he's able to work on it uh, productively while I'm writing the spec and doing the UI. (laughs) And by the time the spec's done, the feature is already like halfway implemented. And it's because I know what the critical step is for Alvin to Mm -hmm. unlock him to go work on it. And if I had shown up to that same meeting with a wireframe instead of a data model, there would have been a lot more ambiguity in what he had to do for the initial setups. And and Mm -hmm. I only know that um, because of one, my experience doing the coding on my own game, and then two, the experience of working uh, with great people like Hide and James on Legendary, where I learned just how important that sort of data modeling is for design and like how that can be the critical juncture to talk about the things programmers need and product managers need and designers need. Um, yeah. That, so, I mean, I'd really recommend it to anybody at any spectrum uh, of their career, but, but, you know, if you're a 15 years experienced product project manager, you're going to have a hard time learning to code, finding the time <laughs> to learn to code your own projects probably. Um, but uh, it, it any way you can get an in, you know, game jam, doing a game jam and doing a, a skill that's outside your core skill set, I, I think it can only make you uh, better at what you do. Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, I'm, I'm super excited to get to play this new Tetris game that's coming out. But uh, here's a question, you know, yeah. when, when I'm thinking about making a new game, let's say, you know, when I'm concepting a game, do you think that someone should start with a game that they love 
or a game that they think players will love? So do you focus a little bit more on you? Oh, I think this is fun. Or do I focus more on like, oh, these are the types of things that my audience, you know, really enjoys playing? Um, to me, that that depends on the context of what the game you're building is, right? If I'm starting a new game concept for a personal project for a prototype I'm building, you know, one one night uh, every other week, like that starts with what do I think is fun or what do I think is interesting or like what is an idea I have that I've never seen expressed in video games before, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Or that can start with like, well, really, what do I want to learn that's new? Like, uh, if I wanted to, you know, one thing I wish I had time for is uh, I'd love to build a Roblox game, a game in <laughs> Roblox, right? Like, yeah. I want to know more about Roblox platform. So if I'm doing that, learning a brand new engine and scripting language, I would say, what's something easy and foolproof I can do, right? I'd probably make, you know, it's, I'd probably remake something I've made before or something where like all the design risk is out of it. If I'm making a prototype for myself for just like my my fantasies of being an indie game designer someday uh, when I'm rich and don't have to worry about paying a mortgage, like <laughs> then I'm probably thinking about like, what is something artistic I wanna say that's never been done before that I could say through video games and how would a game mm. mechanic make it stronger? But if I'm doing a new game at Network, which is you know a venture funded startup and there are uh, business requirements and goals that have to be made uh, to, uh, in service the company, probably I'm thinking, you know, if it's completely blue, sky, I, you know, I never really get a complete blue sky project from um, in a business context. Yep. Usually there's something like, let's just say um, you're given a genre to work in. Uh, there, there I start with what do players like in the current genre? What are they satisfied with? And where are the areas to innovate that'll help us achieve our business goals, right? And that can apply whether you're, you know, doing a, 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 a hyper casual, like breakout style game or like mm-hmm. a solitaire game for older gamers or whether you're doing like a hard, uh, mid to hardcore turn-based RPG, you know, usually in the business context, they'll start with like, what's something familiar and proven? And then what's something new I can bring to it that'll be fun and good for players and enhance the business model? Mm. And like, where's the, where's the interaction there? Would you try to talk to players? Like, you know, obviously you're making a new Tetris game. Would you try to talk to people that enjoy playing Tetris to understand like why they are, you know, can you figure out most of that stuff just looking at, you know, data and stats and such? Um, I, uh, I like, usually when a game is soft launched, I love trying to talk to our players. Like in Legendary, it was a very effective tool. Once we had guilds to get in contact with like guild leaders and guild players and send them in surveys or, or get influential players on the phone and like just talk to them for an hour and understand more about them. Um, in the earlier phases for me, uh, playing the hits in the genre, like playing those games deeply and then trying to go into forums or Reddit or, you know, wherever those gamers congregate, mobile gamers don't talk as much online, but there are still places to find them. Um, so I personally will usually do less, um, less like getting 
in direct contact with players before a project is live and more like on Tetris Prime, you know, our our primary Tetris game that's out worldwide right now that has this like super innovative nightly game show format with cash prizes. <laughs> Once that had been running for a while, talking to some of the players who've won top prizes has been really valuable, right? <laughs> um, so I guess it just, uh, it all, it, it, you know, talking, talking to players can be really valuable in, in helping you learn where what you as like a business owner might think is important versus what your customers think is important. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you're trying to do something new and innovative and you have strong motivations to do that, like I, I, my experience is that the, you're not going to find the what talking to players, but you might find the why. Yeah. Right? Like you're going to have a hard time uh, convincing players that they need a new game mode that they've never seen before, <laughs> but you might unlock a desire or need that can be addressed through something new they've never seen before. Cool. That's great insight. Well, I will say, I don't know if you have aspirations like I do, but, uh, you know, I've got two little girls at home and I really want them to grow up and not just like math and stuff, but I also want them to learn how to code because I, I see in the future that coding is going to become kind of just a essential, you know, skill that you're going to have alongside writing English and doing math and things like that. But you gave me an idea, which is once they're old enough to actually play Roblox, you know, being able to make a game with them together might be a fun way for them to learn and get to itch that scratch that I have, which is to play around with the Roblox platform too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my, my kids are, we talked to my, my, my oldest is five right now. So like they're too young for it now, but uh, <laughs> I'm definitely looking forward to starting them off on gaming. And then as we get older, learning ways to teach them coding or the principles of it. Cause um, I really think that uh, already for our generation and even more so for them, like coding is just going to be one of the key uh, tools of creative expression. Mm -hmm. you know? And so that's why I'm uh, excited to get my kids interested in it through tools like uh, modding and Roblox and other, <laughs> other things like that, game creation platforms. Yeah. So thinking a little bit more about like your Tetris game, Mm -hmm. If you could have one new tool that would help streamline the live ops stuff that you guys do with like your nightly cash prizes and stuff like that, you know, what kind of thing would you want to make that isn't out there? Hmm. Interesting. Um, something that I think would be super valuable um, that would probably apply both to something like Tetris with its nightly game show and and once we get like events going and something like legendary I think a dream tool would be something that analyzes event performance or you know match performance mm -hmm. and spits out recommendations for tuning changes or like other insights for unmet needs in the economy like um you know, if you're, if you're thinking about something like this is a, a kind of pie in the tide dream, uh, pie, uh, pie <laughs> in the sky dream tool. We love those. like, you know, every time an event ends in legendary, you might have, uh, a hundred questions 
and time to do the data analysis on one of them before <laughs> you have to get the tuning done for the next event, you know? And so something, tools around automating event setup or um, analyzing game economies and trying like spotting, spotting suggested changes uh, that you then as a player, as a, as a PM can look at and say like, oh yes, this makes sense. Like we should do this tuning change or like, oh no, this is algorithmic garbage. It means nothing. Like, <laughs> even that, like that would be uh, uh, an amazing thing, I think. Yeah, just drawing your eyeballs on the things that you should be looking at rather than having to dig for those. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. I like that. So that GDC talk that, so have you done multiple GDC talks? Because I know I've seen the one where I think you were already at Network. Yeah, I um, when I was a when I started as a consultant, you know, I did I did three years uh, of consulting in, in monetization design, and there I would do GDC every year, and you know other events, uh, other GDC events in other locations, and then other game industry events. So I was I was speaking at conferences pretty regularly, and then I think for the two first two or three years at Network, I gave. GDC talks, it, like it was until I moved out to uh, South Carolina and it became a little harder mm -hmm. to get to San Francisco. So I think I've given, I, I can't remember if it's like somewhere more than five and less than 10 different <laughs> unique GDC talks all about free to play design or operations or best practices. Yeah. Well, if you're listening, you should go and find those. I know I am. The The one that I saw was super interesting. Actually, I'd love to, to dive into it. What does config-driven design actually mean, Ethan? Got it. Yeah. So this was, um, I think there's, uh, there uh, of the talks I've given, they're like the two that I'm most contacted about, which are one's an early one, which is like designing and app purchases that was just really at least in North America, a little bit ahead of the curve on being an advocate evangelist for free to play. It's like that still gets a lot of views and people reaching out. And there was one um, called uh, the Tower of Want, which is probably the one people ask me, like industry peers ask me the most about that. Like, I'm really <laughs> glad people find value in that. That was like a mental framework. And then there's the one that I think is the most valuable, but then is maybe also the hardest to understand unless you've lived <laughs> it, which is this config-driven design one. Um, this is probably really, it's it's one of those talks where I'm like, uh, I hope in my head, I'm like, I really hope you're understanding this because I feel like I'm giving away like my key knowledge from 18 years of uh, development here. But this goes back to the topic I kind of hit on a little bit before, which is when you're when you're running a free-to-play or a service-based game, you are, uh, if you're doing it, you know, best in class, like I think the legendary team uh, that I'm not a part of anymore does at Network, um, you are running events and making changes all the time um, in the live environment. And mm -hmm. so... Uh, th this talk is kind of about my shift of my approach to how I designed uh, features collaboratively and, and especially about like how I framed the conversation. And so um, the, the short version is uh, like the key insight is you need to, to design things flexibly 
uh, to be able to make as many different interesting changes in the live environment without uh, app updates as possible. And um, if you have the right design practice, that will allow you and your team to not only use features the way uh, that you're thinking of when you first design them, but also to um, try out new and interesting things uh, that you've never never thought of in the initial phase uh, when you're live and you're trying to pivot quickly and meet business needs and like, oh no, you know, like a good example is if players are burnt out on an event format, right? The more flexible it is, you might find that you're able to take something that's an existing event harness and without any code changes entirely through like prefabs and config, build mm -hmm. something that for players, sorry, I should say prefab, config, and new art, like yep. make it seem like a whole new fresh experience to players and like, hey, here's this brand new event format. Like you're you're tired of, of dungeon, you're tired of raid boss, here's the crusader event, right? Like, uh, and make it feel fresh and new for players. And so for me, like when I started at Network, when I would be designing a feature and I would need to discuss it with my collaborators and my stakeholders, I would start with wireframes. Mm. And that would be what drove the conversation. Like you do, you know, the raid boss screen looks like this and it has these features and these pieces of text. And then you tap on this and you go here and I would build these interactive prototypes uh, very rapidly so that we could all get a feel for it. I was designing things from the player's eyes and then from the player's eyes, we were discussing systems and, and data sets and data structures and stuff. Yep. And what I found was two things. One, that that limited the flexibility because I ended up then asking engineers for exactly what was on the screen and wasn't thinking about all the ways I might want to, not I, like the PMT might want to remix features in the future. And then also, you know, you'd get into, con I'd get into conversations with uh, uh, James, the, the engineering leader on that project. And just like, well, what's this piece of text? Oh, so that thing that like you just put on the screen that you think is super easy is actually uh, an incredibly complicated ask. And it's complicated for this, this, and this <laughs> reason. And like, I'm just trying to get through like the initial phases of getting buy-in on stuff. And I, without knowing it, because I don't have a feel for it, I'm like, uh, you know, uh, writing down single sentences that, or making little wireframes that may uh, imply weeks or months of work when there's a much simpler way of doing things, mm. right? And I thought that was important. I mean, that was that was how I thought about features was how the player sees it, and that was all that mattered. And talking about what the player sees, and so what I learned over the years working on Legendary was to switch from wireframe first to config first, and and. The config, what I, when I say that, what I mean is there are, in, in a game like Legendary or like Tetris, spreadsheets run all the game, right? It's where, it's where the uh, designers and product managers do the scripting for how the game expresses itself to the player. And so, and, and it's really the intersection between the, the engineering, the product management, and the design. 
and the user experience. It's it it all hits right there in what are the things I need to control and how would they be used, and then turn that into what the player sees. And uh, once I started designing in that way, I found that feature design went much quicker, right? Part of it because I was meeting the engineers on their ground instead of mine and like working through a lot of the tricky issues at the data level. And then from that, showing what the user interface would look like for the player, right? And so I was never putting things into a wireframe that are like, we didn't discuss that and this'll take this much time or this is stupid for this reason, right? Like that stopped happening because we were having all the conversations about like, hey, I want this new box gotcha to work this way. I want to be able, I want to be able to do this thing, you know, I want it to be able to express itself this way and this way. And I think if I have these columns, you know, this is expression one, this is expression two. And then sit down, look at it with the with with Hide and James and like iterate on it, iterate on it until we have the the absolute right data model for it. And like we already know what the product manager is going to be looking at when they're setting up and tuning the event. And then I can efficiently build a user experience for that that doesn't that has only the things we need and have agreed upon and like we already know how they're going to work and interact and doesn't have like any hidden gotchas where there's something I might have thought was really important that isn't doesn't end up being that important or ends up being inflexible or like duplicate systems that should have just been the, the same system. Yeah. So so let me make sure I've got this and can I break it down for people that are listening. Mm-hmm. So Essentially, uh, if I want to push out this feature, I'm going to go into a spreadsheet and I will, you know, set up all the stuff that's going to be happening during this event. That information gets put into the server. Ultimately, it's sent to the game probably in like a JSON config file that has all the different details. And then the game client will then render that appropriately based on the details that are sent over. So essentially what you're saying with the config-driven design is, Rather than focusing on what it looks like or what you're going to put that in, you start by looking at, you know, that config, that JSON that's basically getting passed over and you figure out, okay, what are the specific details that we're going to need to have in here in order for the game to be able to, you know, do this stuff. And once you've kind of established and hashed out, okay, yeah, this is the the data model then you can take those data model pieces and go and spec out the design to say, okay, how are each of these things going to be rendered in the game's UX? Uh, And I know that I already have the flexibility I want. And then it's just a matter of building that out into the Excel format for you to actually uh, maintain it live. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, really it's, so you, you got that right. And it's, it's about, the, the key part of it was about having very efficient conversations where we could quickly understand the essence of a design. And the way we did that was like, you know, the, the metaphor um, I was using in, in that talk was about building sailboats and making sure you're building the right boat for the captain that's going to be uh, driving it, you know? Yeah. And so by upfront having the conversations that are like, this is exactly how I, th- you know, this is what it'll, it'll look like for the PMs who are using this feature 
every week and they're going to be building different events off of it or building different sales, configuring different gotcha packs, like making sure that we were all in alignment on exactly how they were going to drive the ship helped us then build the rest of the ship very quickly. Right. And, no. and when you're thinking about flexibility in that config file, because I could also see if you have the config built in a certain way, it actually might be kind of inflexible, but is it just a matter of having the conversations with the, you know, PMs to say, oh, well, I might, you know, maybe I want to change that background because then I can reuse this, you know, Thanksgiving event for Christmas or whatnot, or, you know, just kind of talking to them on how they might want to use it in the future. Is that kind of how the flexibility plays in or? or how yeah. And I mean, it, it depends project to project because sometimes like on legendary, I'm not doing any of the live operations. And then sometimes on like donuts, which was an in-between project, the in-between project I, I talked about that was in soft launch for a long time or on the Tetris game, like I might be doing, um, the live ops myself. So, uh, again, that experience, that well-rounded experience of having, of playing all the positions <laughs> helps me do it efficiently. Yeah. <clears throat> but, uh, a really good, a really, a really good example of this at play was on donuts. Um, I had a, an engineer, uh, Stefan, I worked with on the tutorial on a new tutorial. And as many know, anyone who's done it knows like tutorials can be very rigid, um, very hard to program because you want players to do exact things in an exact sequence and not mess things up at all. And then because of their rigidity, they're difficult to iterate on. And it's one of the most important things to iterate on, right? Yeah. Because you need people to get past your tutorial to become, you know, day zero, day one, day two users, right? (laughs) Yep. And like, um, so on donuts, for example, the flexibility came through both while we were building the tutorial and iterating it on on it internally. And when we were iterating on it, once it went live. And so Stefan was in Vietnam. I was in South Carolina and uh, every night, Uh, when I was, I would end my day by sending him a a Google slide, Google slides that were like, okay, here's the tutorial I'm trying to achieve. It looks like this. This is what the spreadsheet should look like. And this is what I'm going to try and do with it. And so this will control, you know, it was a match three game. So what I was trying to do was highlight certain spots in the board and set up the game so that the player could only do one thing and that they would get text showing that, telling them what to do. They would see exactly what they had to do and they would move through a very specific sequence. And instead of telling Stefan what that sequence was, I would say, I said, build me these, this tool essentially, which is the, the, the config controls the tutorial sequence. And then I'll build out my flow the way I've imagined it here. And so probably over you know, my, my first version wasn't right. Right. Like I got the first thing and I'm like, Oh, you know what? I need to be able to highlight more than just a square shape on this match three game. I need to be able to highlight specific cells. So I need to be able to highlight cells in this format instead of this format. And then, you know, send, you know, he does that work in the night. I get a new build in the morning. And again, I try and do it. And I find, Oh, on level five of the tutorial, when I'm trying to teach you how to combine two rockets, maybe I don't have the control over the text positioning I need. And Mm -hmm. you can get into this position where the text is, uh, 
covering up the thing you need to tap on, something like that. So <laughs> we did, I, I mean, I don't remember exactly what it was, but you know, by building it that way, we did probably five or six full versions of a like 10 level tutorial um, that in a different, asking for it a different way could have taken three times as long to go through that many iterations and been more mm -hmm. buggy and like just been a bigger pain. And then once that tutorial went live, I was able to look at the data and go like, oh, I can eliminate this step. I can eliminate this step. <laughs> like I need to get people through this quicker. Yeah. So let's take this and this out. Oh, this isn't quite working. Let's update a little bit. And through um, just by planning for that flexibility ahead of time, it helped me build it faster, iterate it on it before players saw it, and then iterate on it once players saw it without doing any client updates. And that yeah. part is key because like, even if I have, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it might be different if you're on, you know, PC, PC is probably going to be the easiest platform to do updates on, but on mobile, um, even if I have an update with one fix in it, if I have an update with one fix in it, I need to get that fix done. I need to get it through QA and then I need to submit it to the platform, to Apple and Google, and then yeah. have them approve the submission. And then it launches. So like the, oh, one change might take three days to five days to get in front of players. Yeah. Right. And now on Tetris, where in addition, I have a licensor who has to approve everything. <laughs> yeah. One, one change might take five days or a week to get in front of players. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so having this tutorial as a good example, set up in this flexible way, I'm able to cut down on my iteration time dramatically and make changes day by day as I'm seeing the data to help achieve the outcome I want. Yeah. So you, you basically built it in a way, like, let's say it started with like a five step process and then you decided, oh, I can take out step two and step four. And you just did that in your config. And then now it's a three step process for players and there's no dev or anything like that because it just responds to the stuff that you're kind of pushing out. Exactly. That's super cool. And, I, and, and in that game, it was, we also built it that we could attach tutorial to any level. So it was like, there was tutorial on level one, <laughs> two, three, and then level 10 when a new mechanic was introduced and level 20 when a new mechanic was mm -hmm. introduced. So in the future, when we introduce new mechanics on level 140, you know, we already have all the functions we need to build the tutorial for that. So it's like, it, it allowed for fast iteration and it was future-proof against uh, needs we didn't have when we first built it. That's that's really cool. <laughs> I think more people should definitely design that way. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing you mentioned is like text covering stuff. Like, do you ever have to think about that type of a thing when you're talking localization here? Because like, you know, simplified Chinese might be a lot smaller in terms of total text than like the, you know, the English version of it or whatnot. Yeah. That's something that our user experience specialists are really good about. Like, um, you know, it's, that's not something I always think about when I'm like whiteboarding a screen in, in my kind of like uh, crappy way. And they might say like, Hey, this fits exactly the text you want, but like, this is not going to work in Russian. This, mm -hmm. this button is too small for Russian localization. So we need to do something different because otherwise it's going to get, 
illegible once we go into these languages. And that's, that's uh, something that definitely comes up in somewhere where I'm just like privileged to work with really great user experience designers who, you know, the way that I now natively think about live operations, they natively think about how this is going to look in all mm. these different languages stuff yeah. and plan for it ahead of time. That's super cool. I dig it. Well, I appreciate you going into that. Um, that is super useful. I think, you know, folks that have been designing differently, maybe thinking about the player experience first, I would say, take note, this sounds super valuable and, you know, saving countless hours. And, and I feel like just getting that fast iteration so that you could change and test something new every single day, you know, versus every three or five days, you're just going to have a much faster feedback loop and be able to optimize your game so much faster. Yeah, absolutely. It's been one of the, <clears throat> I think speed and speed of iteration, speed of action has been one of the superpowers of network as an organization um, that like just trains you to think differently and work differently than, than you might in another place where, you know, we're, we're making, uh, when you train yourself and your team to work uh, towards daily goals and being able to pivot today based on things not working to plan yesterday and like always needing to do those sorts of daily iterations, it just like, it gets you, you start moving at a pace that like in those instances where you end up talking to other developers and like learning, remembering what a what a slower pace of work for service games looked like. You're like, oh man, like I, I forgot what it's like to like. We're just sprinting all the time. Yeah, and you know that express like literally this week. You know, I the, the new Tetris game that, that's not out yet. We're building with um, a platform partner. They had some changes that they wanted in the game. And so we had this meeting like this two nights ago, like we need you to do X and Y. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's great. Like uh, the first one, these new game modes, like uh, we already started working on it this morning. It's going to be done tomorrow. I kind of predicted all the things you were going to say. And the next thing will take another day or two. And like, we're going to have a new update to you before the week is out. And like, that's amazing. Like normally when we talk to people, and have these sorts of meetings, they're like, and we'll have a new update for you in a month or two. I'm like, that's that blew my, that blew my mind. I was like, how can, no, no, this stuff is, if you set things up the right way, I think these things can be easy to do. So yeah. it's just, um, I don't know, it's been a superpower of the company and, you know, one that on the, uh, when we're working with partners, not only on our internal games, but on our like external games through the network scale platform, like that's one of the, expertises we try and bring to our developers to help them uh, improve the quality of their game and their outcomes is tools to do all these sorts of things and then kind of professional guidance and expertise. Yeah, that's great. So I have one last question and then our unofficial question. What do you think of notifications as a tool to boost, you know, user engagement and retention rates? Um, I think that, let's see, as a player, notifications can be great or they can be super annoying. Um, and so I think, I mean, I think it's a really valuable tool. And especially if you're thinking about how am I delivering 
notifications that deliver value to players to where they want to turn it on and not spamming them so many times during the day that they turn them off. Um, and like uh, for Tetris, for prime time, notifications are super important because we have a game mode you can play once per day at a specific time. And depending on where you are in the world, if you're in Madison, uh, you're playing the East Coast primetime game. That means in the game, in the videos, we're talking about seven o'clock, and then on your button it says six o'clock. It's not. <laughs> it's nine o'clock now, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, notifications are that really important tool for something like primetime, where we're like, we want every player, we want as many people to turn on notifications as we can. That's why when you install the game. If you're in a primetime eligible country, the first thing you see is a full screen video and a screen whose only purpose is to tell you to turn on your notifications <laughs> so you know when primetime is available so you can win cash every night, right? Yeah. That has like a very clear value proposition. Turn on notifications, never miss a chance to win cash. Um, and our notification subscription rate is really strong. Um, and I think it, it's um, we do our best to keep them like fun and different night to night. So like notifications can be incredibly helpful or like there's uh, a game I really like playing called Big Run Solitaire um, that has asynchronous head-to-head -head score competition. And I love getting a notification to see the match results uh, when one of my games is done. So like notifications mm -hmm. can be great, but there are, I think you have to frame the value for the player and like, almost any game that asks me to turn on notifications as the first thing after I install, I say no. <laughs> yeah. Right. But if they like wait for the time to tell me why I need notifications as a player, I'll, I'll turn them on. Uh, if I think the value's there. Mm. Yeah. That makes sense. Cool. Our, our last unofficial question, since this is the mastering retention podcast, yeah. what's one tip or trick you could share with people on how to boost your retention rates? Mm. Well, uh, I, I would say to go back to that story I told about donuts, um, uh, having a very flexible tutorial and just a flexible first time user experience and then good data and analytics around it are key um, because solving top of the funnel problems can have, can have big payoffs down the line. Um, an example actually from the early days of Legendary is um, when we uh, first had events in, right? When we first put events in, we put in basically a new version of the Fatui. And um, you would play your one Fatui game. You would do some stuff in the UI, like teaching you different screens, and then you were free. And then once you hit a certain rank, it unlocked an advertisement for events because it told you now you can play events and unlocked more stuff in the, um, in the UI in the game kind of was more fully featured. And I think I remember early on um, after, I can't remember how far after that had gone out. Um, I was grabbing coffee in the morning with, with Josh uh, who led our marketing analytics and we were just talking about the game and, and uh, I think he brought up to me something about like, you know, most of the players 
uh, who leave, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting, this is a years old conversation at this point. So I'm not getting it exactly right. But let's just say you said like, you know, uh, you have your players who leave in the first minute that always happens. Like you can't do anything about them, but then the rest of your players are leaving around minute seven or eight. Um, and we went, you know, we finished, we got our coffees, we went back and we looked at like, well, what's happening around minute seven and eight. And what's the difference between those players who stick around and those who don't. And, uh, rank four was the rank at which you unlocked events and the game told you there's more to the game than just what you're seeing. Mm. And that was about on average 15 minutes in. Hmm. And what we did was we then changed the tuning so that the average player would, uh, unlock events by minute seven. And that had, I, I want to say like a, uh, uh, you know, this was, maybe 20 minutes of work. And it, if I remember right, it increased day one retention by one to two percentage points. Now wow. that might not sound like a lot, but like when you're talking a mid core game, like uh, legendary going from, you know, again, I'm pulling these numbers out of thin air, but like, I don't, I don't know what they are right now or even what they were then. But like on a mid core game, if you're going from 26 to 28% day one retention, that's yeah. really meaningful because a mm-hmm. mid-core game is about is is about finding uh, those. Um, you know, it's not giant audience. It's not a giant audience. You're trying to like maximize, get every player you can to turn into an elder player. And yeah. so, that was an example of again, flex of flexible tools, good data, and solid investigation in what's happening in your first session can make a major impact of making it more likely players come back for the second session and the third and the fourth. And you just have to stack a lot of those tiny wins on top of each other to, to get to like a, the successful retention curve you need to drive a hit <laughs> game like legendary. Yeah, that is fantastic. Well, Ethan, this has been fantastic chatting today. Um, if people do want to contact you, what is the best way to do that? Uh, sure. You can uh, reach out to me, Ethan at famousaspect.com or just follow me at Famous Aspect on Twitter, send me a DM. I'm, I'm pretty uh, open and available. And uh, yeah, love to hear from other game developers always. All right, well, thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Thank you.